This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast reviewing the scripture readings for the Sunday Masses in Roman Catholic churches on February 20th, 2022. On the church's calendar, it's the seventh Sunday in ordinary time in year C of the lectionary cycle, the year we hear primarily from St. Luke. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm here to share some background and context information about the coming weekend's scripture. It's gathered from the work of genuine scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators. It's offered here to help clear away some of the obstacles of time, translation, and cultural differences that can hide the deeper insights that scripture holds. But fair warning, all this good information is sifted through my own tiny brain. If you'd like to have your eyes on the scripture readings as I talk about them, simply go to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website. It's usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select Prayer and Worship. And from the menu that drops down from there, choose Daily Readings Calendar. In today's Gospel, Luke shows us a Jesus telling us to be merciful to a seemingly impossible extent. At first glance, it looks crazy, dangerous, even self-destructive. From the first book of Samuel, we get an ancient example of the success of one who employs this kind of extraordinary mercy. And St. Paul explains how all the baptized have been empowered to act in ways beyond that which broken human nature finds possible in a further explanation of resurrection continued from last week. We begin with the reading from the work of Samuel, who served the Jewish people as seer, priest, military leader, judge, and prophet. He was the first of their prophets to follow Moses. He was the fifteenth and last of the judges to lead the Jewish people, and it was he who anointed the first two kings of Israel. The judges served as leaders of the Jewish people during the time of their conquest of the Canaanites, who occupied the land into which they entered after coming out of the Egyptian captivity. We refer to the day's passage as from the first book of Samuel. The business of titles in scripture of this era is convoluted, while they're recording events in the 11th and 10th centuries B.C., the books themselves were most likely written during the Babylonian exile hundreds of years later. What was originally a single volume became two in the 3rd century B.C. when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, the translation known as the Septuagint. The single book of Samuel was too long to fit on a single scroll of that time, so it was split into two. The designations first and second book of Samuel are essentially accidents of technological limitations from way back then. Also, please note that Samuel's name on the books does not indicate that he is either the author or the main character of them. In fact, his death is recorded near the end of what we now call the first book. I think I've gone too far down this rabbit hole, so I'm sorry. Today's passage records the second of two times that David spares the life of King Saul 
when he easily could have killed him. Here's the backstory. Saul had been anointed Israel's first king by Samuel at the urging of the elders of the people. David, who was a loyal follower of Saul and a gifted military leader, had been anointed secretly by Samuel to be Israel's second king. Here's the problem. Saul was still on the throne at the time and had no plans to vacate. He felt threatened by David's growing popularity with the people, so Saul tried to have David killed. David, for his part, remained loyal to Saul as king, adopting a patient king-in-waiting sort of attitude. David reasoned that Saul was king because God wanted him to be king. God should determine when Saul's reign would end. But knowing of Saul's rage, David fled into the desert. As I said, today's scene is David's second opportunity to end Saul's life easily. The first occurred when Saul entered a cave in which David was already present. Saul was alone. His purpose was to uh, offload some organic byproducts of earlier meals. Saul was indisposed, very vulnerable. But David chose to allow him to leave the cave unharmed. What a relief, huh? <laughs> okay, sorry. Today's passage has Saul and thousands of his soldiers again pursuing David in the desert. This is the day's reading from the first book of Samuel. In those days, Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with 3,000 picked men of Israel to search for David in the desert of Ziph. So David and Abishai went among Saul's soldiers by night and found Saul lying asleep within the barricade with his spear thrust into the ground at his head and Abner and his men sleeping around him. Abishai whispered to David, God has delivered your enemy into your grasp this day. Let me nail him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I will not need a second thrust. But David said to Abishai, Do not harm him, for who can lay hands on the Lord's anointed and remain unpunished? So David took the spear and the water jug from their place at Saul's head, and they got away without anyone seeing or knowing or awakening. All remained asleep, because the Lord had put them into a deep slumber. Going across to an opposite slope, David stood on a remote hilltop at a great distance from Abner, son of Ner, and the troops. He said, Here is the king's spear. Let an attendant come over and get it. The Lord will reward each man for his justice and faithfulness. Today, though the Lord delivered you into my grasp, I would not harm the Lord's anointed the word of the Lord. A few details to note here. First, that David and Abishai make it right up to Saul and Abner as they slept is more than a bit unusual, wouldn't you say? Abner is Saul's cousin and the commander-in-chief of the army. They are surrounded by 3,000 soldiers. Now, the leadership of a military force does not bed down on its periphery. They had to be physically surrounded by their own armed forces. 
Not one of the three thousand was awake on guard to sound the alarm. The encroachment and exit that David and Abishai make without detection is a sign of dramatic divine intervention. The sleep that overcame Saul and his men is a deep slumber, as the text says, described with the same word, tardema, used to define the sleep that God cast upon Adam when his rib was extracted to form his companion. Second, the king's spear is part of the regalia of royalty. When it is stuck into the ground, it is a sign of the location of the royal tent, the most protected place in the camp. It would have been the ultimate disgrace and damning evidence of Abner's failure to protect his king if Saul had died by his own spear. And, finally, David foreshadows the teaching of Jesus somewhat by abstaining from violence in response to violence, while at the same time being effective in resisting the aggression that was aimed at him by Saul's murderous intent. Being nonviolent is not at all the same as being a pushover. But was David a great teacher of nonviolence? That would be a stretch. These incidents are fine examples of creative nonviolent actions when facing aggression, but later in life, David would prove himself capable of murder in the service of lust. Something more, it seems, is required to sustain this manner of nonviolent behavior. Moving on to the responsorial psalm, we also find nuances of the language that merit attention. First, the call to bless the Lord. Most often this is a call for God's intervention or grace to address a current or future event or circumstance. Here, it asks for praise of God for blessings already received. Next, it might not be obvious that the psalmist is addressing himself with this command. Such entreaties in psalmody are typically calling on others to pray, offer thanksgiving, or behave in specific ways. This is the psalmist calling on himself to thank God with every fiber of his being. Note that the call to bless God's holy name is another amplification of the thanksgiving. One's name had much more significance and power then as compared to now. On occasions of special significance in their history, the Israelites would praise God's name rather than praising God directly. They would do so without actually pronouncing the name, of course. Here is the responsorial for the day. The Lord is kind and merciful. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all my being, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The Lord is kind and merciful. He pardons all your iniquities, heals all your ills. He redeems your life from destruction, crowns you with kindness and compassion. The Lord is kind and merciful. Merciful and gracious is the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in kindness. Not according to our sins does he deal with us, nor does he requite us according to our crimes. The Lord is kind and merciful. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far has he put our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The Lord is kind and merciful. In the second and third stanzas, we heard the reason for this praise, God's extravagant mercy toward the people. The extent of that extravagance is characterized as limitless and most intimate. The expression, as far as the East is from the West, is a figure of speech meaning an incalculable distance that stretches beyond all horizons. The intimacy of God's compassion is characterized as that of a father toward his child, but it is, in fact, amplified more than that. The word used is derived from the word meaning womb. It is a womb-born love of a mother as well. Next, we hear from St. Paul in another passage from his first letter to the Corinthians. In it, he offers an argument to help account for the ability of mere humans to extend mercy, as God extends mercy, as David demonstrated to a limited extent in the first reading. It all stems from God's grace. Jesus, in today's gospel, will command that level of benevolence from all the baptized. Paul offers hope that such merciful behavior is, in fact, possible as he continues his description of the resurrected body for which Christians wait in hope. Paul's explanation goes something like this. All humanity descends from Adam, the one who received the breath of life. The name Adam derives from the Hebrew word meaning of the earth or of the red earth. One could, I suggest, appropriately translate Adam as earthling. Brace yourself for a brief tangent. You might have heard this before. Given the red color that's mentioned, one could infer the presence of oxidized iron. Since all the Earth's iron is derived from exploding stars, we can add stardust to our physical body's constitutive elements. End of tangent. But kind of cool, don't you think? Back to Paul. He's arguing against an unstated alternate position in this part of the letter. You see, there were some in the Corinthian community who apparently believed that the man made in God's image in the first chapter of Genesis was an incorruptible heavenly being set out as a model for all humanity that would follow. The man made from the earth, Adam, is mentioned in chapter 2. They reasoned erroneously that Adam was merely a tangible material copy of that first man in chapter 1. If that were the case, the heavenly man would have come before the material earthly man. For the sake of brevity and my own sanity, I'll spare us all the catalogue of misinterpretations that that foundation invites. Suffice it to say that Paul insisted on the earthly body being the first. The natural in creation preceded the spiritual, the supernatural. The earthling, the first Adam, was made from the dust and received the breath of life, becoming a living soul in his mortal, corruptible body. 
Jesus, the final Adam, who became the life-giving Spirit, is the heavenly one because of his resurrection and becomes the source of life raised up for all those who are his followers. Finally, Paul unites the two images we baptized humans bear. We bear the earthly image of our biological predecessor, Adam, as well as the image of our resurrected spiritual predecessor, Jesus the Christ. It is through the power of the resurrection coming out of the passion and death of Jesus that all those who follow him have the potential to accomplish great works of mercy, justice, and love beyond the natural. Paul says all that quite succinctly. Here is the day's reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. But the spiritual was not first, rather the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, earthly, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly one, so also are the earthly. And as is the heavenly one, so also are the heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly one, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly one. The Word of the Lord On the previous Sunday, Luke gave us his record of Jesus preaching the Beatitudes for the poor and excluded, along with the woes for the self-satisfied. In today's passage, which follows immediately from last week's selection, he gets down to specifics. And they might sound a little crazy by the standards of survival in a world of scarcity and violence. Here's the day's reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Jesus said to his disciples, To you who hear, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. To the person who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other one as well. And from the person who takes your cloak, do not withhold even your tunic. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from the one who takes what is yours, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. For if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend money to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But rather, love your enemies and do good to them and lend expecting nothing back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High, for he himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Stop judging, and you will not be judged. Stop condemning, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, 
and gifts will be given to you. A good measure, packed together, shaken down and overflowing, will be poured into your lap. For the measure with which you measure will in turn be measured out to you. The Gospel of the Lord. Here again, there is a detail in the text that might go unnoticed. Consider the setting. Jesus is present with a great number of his disciples, including the twelve whom he has just named to be his apostles. A great crowd of others from across the region have gathered as well. And Luke goes out of his way to let us know that these words are directed to his disciples, but in the presence of the crowd of the curious that surrounds them. This is, however, a standard that Jesus sets out for those who have chosen to follow him. So what? This is not a sweet-sounding invitation to come join us. It is not a challenge or goal for the unbaptized. To practice this way of being in the world is hardly possible for them. These instructions require something more than basic human instincts the strongest of which is survival. What makes adherence to this code possible? One's ability comes when one's baptism into Christ is completely realized, fully brought to life. It is from the recovery of what it is to experience life to the fullest. In giving oneself over to the grace brought by Christ, perhaps we see the something more lacking in David's life. This gospel passage contains a list of specific behaviors that demonstrate a full response to such a state of grace. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said as much when he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. His words were these, We must evolve for all human conflict a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. Even secular scholars are approaching this consciousness. Among them are now contemporary social scientists who espouse the position that the highest of all human instincts is, ultimately, kindness. It's not quite a theological approach, but it is certainly compatible with the teachings of Jesus. Matthew's Gospel, in its parallel Sermon on the Mount, also shows us Jesus taking nonviolence from the status of tactic, as practiced occasionally by David, and elevating it into a way of life. Matthew's longer record of this teaching contains six antitheses, that is, phrases that start with something like, the law says, but I say, all of which center on nonviolence and love toward enemies. Although they are not addressed directly in Luke's scene, the crowd of the curious hears all this too, of course. Will some of them aspire to this behavior as well? Perhaps, but at the very least, they now know what Christ expects of those who claim the status of his disciple. The crowd, representing perhaps the mission field, the world at large, is now certainly equipped to expect this kind of elevated behavior from all of us as well. 
The passage begins with a command that anyone would consider an oxymoron. Love your enemies. Who does that? Jesus continues on the same track with the instructions that follow. Luke does not use the noun agape for love here. Love, in this case and throughout most of his gospel, is a verb, an active verb, not an emotion. What do you suppose it means to do good to those who hate you? Many commentators insist that this is not a command to roll over, play dead, and do whatever you are told by your adversary. Rather, Jesus is calling for something even more difficult than that, and that is to reverse our automatic urge to retaliate. It's not advice to cut your losses and run. It is a whole new kind of engagement between opposing parties. All of what Jesus commands here is counterintuitive. The next instructions get specific. Give to everyone who asks. Do not demand back that which is taken from you. All sound crazy in terms of survival in a material world. Next, Jesus describes behaviors that most would find sufficient to be judged a good person. Love those who love you. Lend to those who will pay you back. But held up to the light, we see those would not separate his disciples from thieves and sinners. Jesus is shortening the legs on our high horse. To emulate divine love, much more is required. God's generative love goes out to all unconditionally and is withheld from no one. If his followers are to truly help heal the broken world, they must do the same. We must do the same. Finally, we come to the removal of many natural behaviors that separate one person or group from another. Judgment, condemnation, the seemingly illogical approach of total self-giving is fruitful beyond one's imagination, Jesus assures them. He has raised the requirement for all who would follow him. It is not merely suppress your anger, forego revenge. It goes beyond do to others as you would want done to you. Ultimately, it's do as God would do. To share in the divine life, as Jesus offers, requires sharing in the divine work. This episode might seem more like a homily than is normal. The text itself demands it, I think. But I will end with this, which really is a homilette. Living one's life adhering to the instructions that Jesus presents here is an insurmountable challenge without the grace of baptism and the other sacramental graces offered to the baptized. To be consistently living in that grace requires, I think, at least two things. The support of a community committed to the same goal, and a complete commitment of oneself to growing in the path that it sets before us, however demanding that path becomes. Errors are inevitable. Fortunately, the one who leads is completely devoted to the business of forgiveness. That's enough for now. I hope you are able to be present at Mass this weekend. 
If you appreciate this time of study, let someone else know about it. And I pray you always feel the ever-present blessing of our merciful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.